you're more in this order taking mindset of here's what I would like to do at scale. So, okay, unleash technology at this. But now I see more technology is the driver of business strategy. And many cases where we're now able to meet those unarticulated needs of the business, right? That is the power. And that's why like every business today is a technology business. Welcome back to the Inspired Execution Podcast. Each episode shares the experience and learnings of a world-class leader on their journey to success. The guests on this podcast are bold, brilliant, and not afraid to change. As you navigate your own path, we hope you feel inspired by their stories, lessons learned, and the vision of the future. Shankar is the Global Chief Digital and Information Officer at Verizon. He has spent almost three decades at Verizon helping transform the business by harnessing the power of data and driving the adoption of new technologies. Today, we talk about how to make data an enterprise asset, what it takes to get people on board with change, and how AI will move humanity forward. Shankar, welcome to Inspired Execution. Chad, glad to be here with you. So you've been at Verizon almost your entire career. Tell us a little bit about your journey. I have to go down the memory lane on this one. So, um, yes, I've been a a lifer here with Verizon. Actually, it's uh, coming up on uh, 28 plus years now. Started as a member of technical staff. Few things that I I cherish in this journey is the opportunity to be, you know, having a front row seat onto the, the technological advances that has happened in the telecommunications space, right? So, it's never been a dull moment, a very rewarding journey. That's awesome. It's interesting. I always, um, you know, we had a coaches don't manage session internally yesterday. And one of the things I talk about is a career progression. And I think of people going through three stages, right? You're an individual contributor, you're a manager, and then you are a leader where you are actually managing thousands of people and coaches of coaches of coaches and coaches. So how do you think your your leadership style has changed over the years, right? As you've evolved into, into this massive job of, you know, driving Verizon's technology. Yeah, you know, uh, I started as an individual contributor and that really gave me a good foundation on understanding what it is that I was working on and how do we all come together to build these large-scale large systems to run a company of the size of uh, Verizon. Back then it was GTE, what was the one of the predecessor companies. And then over time had an opportunity to uh, get into roles of increasing responsibilities. During that period, uh, Chet, like, and I had to rely on my technical experience, the skills. I truly believed in the mission. I had confidence in what I was doing. Uh, and I was able to manage smaller teams, empower them, and ha- allow them to take charge and uh, drive results. And it was during the FIOS opportunity, like when we made this big bet to roll out fiber all the way to the customer's premises, that was a large undertaking. And we were the first in the industry to do something like that, to make a gutsy bet like that. It was literally 10 months from the point of ideation to the point of lighting up the first customer on that service. And I had the privilege and the opportunity to lead that program from a technology and a system standpoint. 
And the thing that I would recall uh, about that experience was that was the first time I had an opportunity to lead through influence instead of authority. And that was a, a, a remarkable experience because that was one that taught me how you can rally the team, have a vision, have a goal, and rally the team behind achieving that goal without necessarily having that team directly report to you, right? So that's where they had to act and follow willingly, you know, instead of uh, acting um, as if I'm their boss, right? Who gets to do the performance appraisal, etc. So that was a great experience that uh, I still today lean on. And that was one of the pivotal points in my uh, journey. And then as I fast forward, now I think I'm still learning and, and, and adapting based on the needs of my organization, not necessarily following a one-size-fits-all approach to leadership, if you will. There are times I have to lead by example, be in the trenches. There are times I have to put people before the work. There are times when I have to be very demanding of the team and demanding of myself when it comes to accountability for results. There are times when I have to be a player's coach. There are times when I have to be an owner's coach. So it's all about how do you weave these different styles of leadership and adapt based on the needs of the organization. This is gold. We could actually spend an hour talking about this because I think the, the thing that I always tell people is that, you know, going from being an individual contributor to a manager is actually an easy hop, right? And it doesn't matter how big the team is. Going to being a leader is you have to have this really amazing, what I call range, right? You cannot influence people unless you know the details because otherwise you're basically telling them what to do and they don't not going to listen at the same time you need to inspire them through influence right and so it's this and it and a lot of people it's not obvious to them but if you're in the details why aren't you an individual contributor and i think you have to go through that to to realize how that works and then so true so true right so there's also another important point here is See, one of the best pieces of advice that I got during my career as well is what's got you here is not what's going to get you where you need to go. So that whole aspect of unlearning certain things as well, as you are moving up, unlearning certain things, what got you there to say, okay, this has worked so far. I can't just like, be a one-trick pony and just rely on that all the time. How am I going to unlearn that and learn new things that's needed to get me where I need to go? I remember a long time ago, I'm going to date myself, I watched a PBS documentary on Esther Dyson. And uh, I hope most of the listeners, if you don't know who Esther Dyson is, go and look her up. She's a pioneer. It's one of the reasons why we all have tech jobs. And she said something very interesting. She said, every time I do a new project or a new startup, I actively try to forget my past. Like, because it's always with me. And I've always thought of it that way, right? Because otherwise you're going to try to recreate what worked and what not. Like try to purge it. Like, you know, almost like actively forget it so that you can actually start anew and think about the new problems in a fresh new way. It seems like you've done that and you've not had many startups. It seems like you've had all the startups within Verizon. That is the thing. That is the thing that I can tell you. When I, honestly, when I started at GTE, this was during the dot-com boom time, right? So this was one of the things that was going through my head and like, you know, what am I doing? Am I, you know, starting my career at the right place? Because when back in my mind, I would always think, okay, Silicon Valley is where I need to be. And I started my job with GT in, uh, in Florida. 
right after grad school, but little did I know how much there was to learn and uh, experience and grow within the company. It literally was pretty much every three years or so, I had an opportunity to work on something different, which was like, you know, you had to start from the ground up and uh, learn new things, build a, a team, network, navigate the social system. And that's really what now I look back, like, you know, 28 plus years, I, it just doesn't feel like I've been in the same company for that long. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's like many different startups, right? That's yeah, awesome. Exactly. Everyone wants to be data-driven, but it doesn't work unless you really build a culture and implement it across the entire company, right? You've, you've again, you've, you've passionately talked about this. What's your advice to companies who want to make data an enterprise asset? A uh, few things that I would say, Chet, right? So the, um, you know, it starts with first understanding, like, you know, what is the data architecture? To truly treat data as an enterprise asset, got to step back and say, what is our data architecture? What are the, the data elements that we have as a company? And uh, take a very thoughtful approach on identifying what are the sources of that data? Where, you know, what are the systems of record or the single version of the truth, if you will? Bring that data together, ingest that data, have a solid infrastructure that can support all that data and scale as your needs grow, and then be able to also democratize that data in a very responsible and secure way. And this is where you know, your data governance practices, your data quality, all of that comes into play. Now you can democratize that data, whether it be for data scientists who are not having to spend 60, 70% of the time wrangling the data or even going after where do I find that data? Or even if it is like, you know, some uh, uh, BI, business intelligence work that somebody has to do because all of that is pretty well curated and readily available for someone to now be able to take that data, convert that to an insight, and then be able to act on that insight. If you step back and ask, why are we even doing all of that? It's really to complete that value chain. Go from data to an insight to an action, you get a result. Is that satisfactory? Yes. If not, how do I really like, you know, get back into that loop and continue that, that uh, approach, if you will? So I think it starts with that foundation of knowing where the data is, having solid governance practices around this, democratizing this, and then uh, uh, now you start building your AI factory on top of that because why is this all important? Because your models have to now be trained to learn from the signals and not the noise. I've always thought about the app being on top, right? And I think, I think what has changed for me over the last decade on my journey is that data is in the middle, right? It serves, if you, if you get, get somebody in that mindset, it sounds very simplistic, but if you just put data in the middle, right, and everything comes, happens after that, it becomes a lot easier. Is that how you think about it and talk to your colleagues about it? Absolutely, right? It's an evolution that we've been on, right? So why did apps exist? Why did, like, you know, so we have all these endpoints to connect over a network to an application. At the end of the day, the essence for why an app exists is to access the data. That, but the data was in its raw form. 
And that conversion of what you do with that data, what you process, etc., was going on at the with the user interpreting that data, making certain decisions, things like that, right? Now we are at a point where you come at it from a different angle, like what you talked about. You now take all that data and you know be able to start with that insight, convert that to an insight. And I've always talked about this. In this world, you know, there's there's three categories of how I would look at information, right? You have your knowns, you have your known unknowns, and then you have your unknown unknowns, right? So the, the thing is, the only way you discover these unknown unknowns is by getting this data. And the other thing I talk about all the time is data is only powerful in the presence of more good data, right? So if I'm in network, I looked at all the alarms and everything that the, the telemetry that I get from all this network gear, it's telling us something, but it was being used just to say, how do I just fix a specific issue that I see in a network? But if we step back and said, no, why am I suppressing a lot of these alarms? If I were to, to let them all go up, I now take that data along with a lot of other data. When I connect the dots across, that is where you discover those unknown unknowns, right? Because we don't start with the problem there. You're starting with like, wait a minute, I'm seeing certain patterns that I was never able to see before. And that is the beauty of like, you know, how if you start with data and insight, how you look at a problem very differently than I just build an application and just give you a graphical user interface to access the data. Yeah, and, and that was be, that's been my transformation, right? So one of the things that, a lot of people struggle with, right? These patterns that you talked about, or, and I'll, I'll double click on it, looking for the signals, right? Um, in small data and in big data, because, you know, quite frankly, you should start with signals on small data before you apply it to big data, because you get lost on the big data part. And you and I have had this conversation before. The person that does that, I have found that generally, we have a tendency to say, that's the data scientist's job. That's an ML ops job, or that's a person's job. And I find that it is very hard to pinpoint the exact person's job who comes up with those particular signals or those patterns. Do you agree? Because I feel like it comes from all over the place, right? You can have a business person who's not deeply technical give you some great patterns, as an example. So true, so true, right? So, so to me, that is a trifecta that brings this to life. You, you need that domain expertise, you need the technology, the IT skills, and the data science skills, right? It only works when it all works, right? And, it, and, and the, the, the domain expertise is super critical here because it's in the power of the question. For them, because they understand like, you know, okay, what does this mean? The data scientist may be able to say, I'm seeing like, you know, this particular uh, corre correlation or causation but they now have a business view of like, you know, what that, is, what that is really telling us as well. So in my view, it's always the three working in concert is where, where things happen. Yeah. So I'm going to move to AI, right? And we were talking about this earlier. We've obviously talked about it before. Let's before we get to generative AI and chat GPT, let's talk about predictive AI, right? You've been doing it for a while and people have had wild expectations from it, right? What can it do? What it can't do? 
How do you bring along your business colleagues on the predictive AI route that you've been on, right? You've been doing it for over like at least five years, if not longer, right? And so how have you, how have you bought Verizon along for that ride? It was more use case by use case basis, right? So we were doing artisanal analytics. Now where we are is how do we go from artisanal analytics to industrial AI? So you now truly run this at scale. And this is one of the balancing acts you have to look at as well on, you have to start somewhere. So it's good to start with a use case. The example that I can give you is churn modeling, right? When you have a large customer base, one of the things that we look for is how do we predict customers who will churn? What does churn mean? Leave our service and go to a competitor's service offering. So there are so many signals that we get, right? I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of signals that we get. How do we use all that data, those attributes, and figure out, build these propensity models that's going to tell us these are the customers. It's, it's literally like finding that needle in a haystack, if you will, off a base of like you know 100 plus million subscribers. How do you know that this is the group of customers who exhibit the signals that, set, that, that tells us they are highly likely to churn, and how do we engage proactively to figure out we are addressing their concerns? It's kind of like reading their mind, if you will, right? So that is one of the key things for us in our business is that churn, even a few basis points improvements in the churn model efficacy translates to huge, you know, huge revenue in terms of the financial benefit the company realizes as well. So this is something like when you tie the, the value at stake and the art of the possible with what technology can do, there is no question of adoption. You naturally, you, the business comes along with you to say, wow, this is really what we're after. So this is where that approach of really looking at what is the problem we're trying to solve? What is the value at stake? Let's unleash technology at that problem. And when you have results to show, naturally success breeds success. And I think it's clear, right? The best way to bring people along for this and what we're going to talk about next is a show and tell, right? You can keep talking about the art of the possible, but art of the possible with even minimal results and MVP is actually more telling than any slideware and discussion you can have. Absolutely. And because we know these are complex problems and, and unless and until the business also sees that there is an outcome this is driving, naturally now they are in to say, okay, what more can we do with this, right? Because now they ask the powerful questions that we can go after. And in many cases, when we start bringing all this data and now bringing them together and the model also figures out a correlation between certain things where the question was even not even framed that way. But we go back with these unknown unknowns to say, here is an insight that we are seeing. What should we do about this, right? So, so that symbiotic relationship, that bidirectional between the business and technology, where technology goes back to the business to say, we're seeing something here that we were not even after, but there's something that we can do about this. I, like, I, I love the way that you keep talking about almost everything as a loop or a circle, right? Which kind of reinforces itself, which is really important because traditional IT organizations have been very much a business tells IT to do something, IT delivers and says, is it good enough? But I think this, 
loop of like there's feedback. And by the way, tech is telling product what's coming, what's not coming. Product is telling tech what we should expect. And that kind of a very healthy relationship, I think, makes all the difference in the world. Huge, huge, right? So because traditionally technology's role, right, in the in the past has been more an enabler of the business strategy. You're more in this order-taking mindset of, here's what I would like to do at scale. So, okay, unleash technology at this. But now I see more technology is the driver of business strategy. And many cases where we're now able to meet those unarticulated needs of the business, right? That is the power. And that's why like every business today is a technology business. Yeah, totally agree. Let's talk about, you know, what would an AI discussion be without talking about ChatGPT? Right, come on, how could we not do that, right? So uh, ChatGPT is in the center of everything. We talked about this earlier before we started the podcast on predictive AI, generative AI. Um, you probably have your board, your, your business leaders, like Shankar, come on, it's all open AI, LLMs, let's go, right? What's holding us back? <laughs> Tell us how you're thinking about this and how the industry should think about it more importantly, right? Because this is, a, this is an inflection point, not just for Verizon, but for the world at large, for society at large, this is going to affect every aspect of our lives, right? But how do you think about it from a tech point of view for executives who are leading technology organizations? So true. You're like, you know, absolutely right, Chad. Like, you know, this is the topic of discussion in all our leadership, you know, meetings in all the boardrooms and also more important now looking at saying, okay, what we saw demonstrated there, how should enterprises think about this? And that's, that's how we're looking at it more than just the chat GPT. Chat GPT by itself was just the tip of the iceberg. It's the underlying foundation model and many, many more large language models that are out there that is now demonstrating the art of the possible that can support all these modalities of like, you know, speech, video, text, code, images, you name it. So the way we are looking at it is like really looking at uh, a few things here. One, we're, I've been spending time internally within the company on raising the awareness of what generative AI is and also drawing a distinction between what traditional ML and what generative AI is. So that way we don't conflate this. There is a risk if we don't clarify machine learning, deep learning, and then generative AI, and when you would use one versus the other. So, so that is one you know, more, that literacy, generative AI literacy campaign, if you will. That's one of the areas where we're focused on. Then we are now looking at what are the use cases. So we are looking at prioritizing use cases based on a, a few factors. What is the strategic importance of this? What is the value at stake? What is the technology feasibility? And more importantly also, what is the risk with this? See, as enamored as we are with what is the art of the possible with generative AI and these foundation models, we should also be mindful of the key risks associated with this technology as well, whether it be the hallucinations, whether it be the copyright infringements, misinformation, bias, you name it, right? How are we going to make sure we have some guardrails in place that will promote the responsible use and adoption of a fabulous technology like this? And I'm a believer. I think there's some 
major, major benefits that this is going to yield, but it has to be done in a very, very responsible way. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing is it's here to stay. It, it has changed our world. Uh, the second thing is, is additive, right? It's not like this, this predictive AI stuff we talked about earlier. It just gives, it gives generative AI far more context, and you can do it in a way that is compliance, that, that, that complies and has guardrails for companies like yourself. Because, you know, large language models are great. You know, give me the weather and things like that. That's awesome. That's relevant. But there's a lot of information for about Chet Kapoor that Verizon has that is not going to go into a public domain large language model, right? And so, but you as Verizon need to take advantage of both, right? Because you have all this information about me and you have all this information about the world at large that you can bring together. So I think a lot of people have to understand that. Perfect. So we are looking at several archetypes of, you know, the architecture is important, right? It comes back to like, you know, the technology of how you architect a solution like this. You have a large language model and you have multiple LLM providers that are out there, but the training data set is anything and everything on the planet, right? So it's not specifically curated for the use cases you are talking about. So how do you use that in conjunction with oh, you know what, I want to now take an adapter model of that and fine-tune that to the specific use case that I'm thinking about with a proprietary data set and have that just live within the, you know, our tenant, if you will, versus living in the cloud provider's tenant or the LLM provider's tenant. So now you are also safeguarding your data, your company proprietary data, privacy, a lot of those things that is where you now get the best of both worlds. That's a beautiful way to describe it. I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this for a long time to come. So I'm going to shift gears and, and make this a little bit more personal. Um, you grew up in India, came to the US. You've been working in tech, like you said, for 28 years. What piece of advice would you share with a younger version of yourself? What would you tell yourself like 30 years ago, <laughs> given that you've already lived, you know, lived through it? Yeah. See, there were so many points, like, you know, back then I remember one of the, you know, am I doing the right thing? That would always be the question. Should I be doing something else? Particularly when I started the job and more and more I saw I was having fun in what I was doing. But I also was mindful that, listen, is the, you know, there's more to explore in the world. Should I just go out and do something else? But now I would look back and say, like, you know, it's, it's been a rewarding journey. So the advice I would give myself is do your best and you will be noticed and you will get those opportunities. Yeah. And, and have fun along the way. Exactly. <laughs> That's what even today, that whole notion of being able to make a difference is really what makes me skip to work every single day. Right. So <laughs> when the alarm clock goes off, I'm, I'm like energized to say, OK, I'm off to work. <laughs> Skip to work. I'm going to use that, Shankar. I'm going to definitely use the skip to work. All right. We're going to go through some rapid fire questions. What's your favorite way to relax? I love to listen to uh, Tamil music from this uh, music composer in India. Uh, his name is Ilaya Raja. And these were songs that I used to listen to in my childhood days. So that just takes me to a special place. Like, you know, I just absolutely love. That's my Zen, Zen mode. I would, uh, I would tell people who do not understand Tamil to listen to the music because it's good stuff. Uh, if you could learn one skill instantly, what, it would, what would it be? 
I would I would love to have infinite memory that ChatGPT has and these models have. <laughs> That's great. If you would if you could witness any historical event, which one would you choose? Uh, that that would be the the first moon landing. I really really was fascinated by that. I wasn't born then, but that was something that I would love to do. Who and what inspires you? Or what? Who or what inspires you? For me, making progress every day absolutely inspires me. That's what gets me, like, you know, skipping to work the following day. <laughs> One foot in front of the other, right? It's amazing, people, how, how they underestimate just making progress every hour, every day, how it adds up in a big way. That's, that's great. Uh, One word or phrase that best describes great leaders? Vision. Having a vision and connecting people to that vision and executing. That's awesome. Shankar, this has been phenomenal. I have had a blast. Thank you very much. I think our, our viewers are going to say, Chet, why did you only do 30 minutes of this? Because we could have gone for an hour. So I might have to come back and actually ask you to do a deeper version of what we talked about, because I think people would absolutely, absolutely love it. Again, thank you very much for doing this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Chet. Uh, I, I certainly enjoyed this. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Execution Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. We have many more phenomenal guests and inspiring stories to come. So be sure to join us next time.